Open up your Bibles this morning, Psalm 139. We're in this series called Clearly. Thank you for allowing me to come back from my time away and share. This is the third and final installment of a series that I just asked the group to put together, give, give me some time just to share some reflections on having been away and let the sediment settle a bit. What have I, what have we seen a little more clearly coming back off of a four-month sabbatical and First thing I said a couple weeks ago is I come back to let you know that I'm seeing more clearly than ever God's love, that there's a raging river of the unconditional love of God flowing through the canyon of our lives. And wisdom says we should lean into that river because it's so, so good. And I'm seeing that a little more clearly, that I'm loved simply for who I am, not what I do or how I perform. The posture of a receiver versus achiever. I'm kind of on that journey. So we talked a bit about God's love, Romans 8. Remember that discussion? Nothing can separate us from that love. Even the events of this past week can't separate us from that love. And then last week I talked about, I'm seeing a little more clearly God's gifts. Particularly the gift of everyday life with Jesus. The gift of new life in Christ. The gift of 15 baptisms and stories and families and the ripple effect from those waters of baptism. That resurrection life that kind of gets spilled out on all of our lives through a baptism Sunday. I'm seeing it a little more clearly. Just the unbelievable gift it is to be given the grace of God. A relationship with the God who created us for all of eternity. What a gift. I'm seeing that a little more clearly. And I'm seeing the gift of the sacrament of the present moment. I'm seeing the gift of right here and right now. I'm seeing the gift of be where my feet are. Just this moment with you right here and right now. And the gift of the next moment because we're only guaranteed this moment right here. We have no idea what tomorrow or this week or this month holds. Sounds an awful lot like what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6, right? Say, hey, Simpson, why are you so distracted with what's to come? I can get so preoccupied with what's next. I I fail to embrace what is. And my actual life is what is. And so I come back seeing that a little more clearly. And trying to just simply be where my feet are, present in this moment right here, right now, with all of you. And the gift of the amazing people we talked about last week. The amazing people that God's put in all of our lives. But I especially come back refreshed, seeing more clearly the amazing people God's put in my life. And to rejoice in that. And to give thanks for that. So those two pillars of the sabbatical were certainly the, more, the easier ones to embrace and receive. Because who doesn't want to have some more time to reflect on God's unconditional love? That nothing can separate us from that love. To lean into that current. It's a wonderful thing. And then God's gifts. What an amazing thing to just camp and reflect on the gift of life in him. Those are good things. It was the third pillar that was the most difficult for me, which I'm going to talk about this morning. Because I found out through the course of the four months that Jesus wanted to talk about me. I wasn't very interested in talking about me for a good portion of the sabbatical. I was, I, that, the old chorus, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I was like, Jesus, I'm gonna turn my eyes upon you, and everything else is gonna grow dim. And, and he's like, yeah, I'm well pleased that you wanna turn your eyes upon me, 
Now I want to talk about you. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. I want to turn my eyes upon Jesus. You're a whole lot better subject than I am. It's like, no, yeah, turn your eyes upon me, and we're going to have a discussion about you. So I put in your notes a quotation from Ruth Haley Barton. See if this resonates with any of you. There comes a time in the spiritual life when one of the major things God is up to is to lovingly help us see ourselves more clearly. This is a most challenging element of the spiritual life. Anybody else want to say amen to that? This is a most challenging element of the spiritual life, one that most of us shrink from with more than a little bit of dread. That's me. I was shrinking back from that, and it took all four months, and I wrapped up the sabbatical three days at a monastery, 50 nuns and me. Kendra thinks that's a book title at some point. Fifty nuns and me at a monastery in three days of silence and solitude for the Lord to break through and say, Simpson, I want you to see the big picture here. We spent this time grounding you in my love for you to lean into that current, to get a little more river man in you because that's so good. And to see the gifts that he surrounded you with so we could get to this conversation. Because no matter what we're going to talk about with you, Simpson, do you see this? No matter what conversation we're going to have here, are we clear that my love for you is unconditional? It's not going to change based upon this dialogue. Are we clear on that? So he had to ground me in the front end of this God's love and God's gift so he could get to this piece, which is what I would call probably a journey of self-knowledge in the spiritual formation process. There is a role of self-knowledge in spiritual formation. And perhaps some of you grew up in church circles where this is a little bit of a barrier where kind of the theology was, well, you just annihilate self. You know, self, it's dead and sin and it just needs to be annihilated and eradicated and there's nothing good that lives in us. And we'll get to some of those pieces in a minute. But here's, what, here's a kind of a hurdle we gotta get over is in the journey with God in the spiritual life, do you realize that you as a person are inhabiting that journey. It's still you. When you come to Jesus and you grow in him, it's still, it's you. We talked before about you 2.0, but it's still you. So you 1.0 is the lost and fallen and broken and needing resurrection life and grace. Yes, yes, yes. And then you 2.0, it's still you. And that's, there's a piece here that, if we can't come to grips with who God has really made us to be, the pieces that we're gonna talk about where he celebrates and delights in, and the pieces where he says, hey, watch out for this, have a healthy self-awareness here. When there's a, there's a vacuum in this in our spiritual life, do you see kind of the, the ripple effect of damage it has around us? I know all kinds of people who know the Bible so well they can quote more scripture, know more stories out of this book, serve in more ministry areas, maybe have a theology degree or two, but have virtually no understanding of their true authentic self. They don't know who they are. And that, that creates a lot of damage. That wreaks chaos in their relational worlds, in their family, in their work, in the community, at church, because they don't know who they are. They got all kinds of this stuff stored up in their head and in their heart, but they don't know who they are. That, that caught, there's a breakdown there. It's really important. So this morning, 
My prayer is over the next 30 minutes or so, we just kind of go on a journey, which is settling into the role of self-knowledge in this walk with Jesus. Because there is a connection. And he led me to Psalm 139 with David to get me there. So Psalm 139 in your Bibles, it starts out this way. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Notice where David starts. If I call Psalm 139 a prayer of self-knowledge, notice where the prayer starts. Oh Lord, any journey towards understanding ourselves better, do you know where it starts? It starts with God. Because we're made in his image. He's not made in ours. So we've got to start with Lord. We've got to, it's truly a God-led, spirit-led, spirit-directed examination of self. This isn't some self-help thing. This is a asking God, hear this, asking God to help us see what he sees. Because isn't it ironic, Psalm, watch what 139 as we go through. He says, oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Later on, the ending verse of the psalm says, Lord, search my heart and test my ways. Isn't that ironic? On the front end of the psalm, he says, Lord, you already know me. You've already searched me. You already declared you're with me. And then at the end of the psalm, he says, oh Lord, search me and reveal to me and expose to me. What is that telling you? It's telling you a prayer like Psalm 139 isn't for God's benefit. It's for David's benefit. It's for our benefit. It's saying, David's saying, hey God, I want to get to the place where I better understand what you see when you look at me. That's a health, that's maturity. And that's what this psalm is about. Verse two, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So here he starts out saying, hey, God sees me. David's saying, hey, God sees me and God knows me. That's where we start this journey of self-knowledge. God sees me and God knows me. I put in your notes a quote from Augustine. He says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Augustine prayed, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. That I may know myself, that I may know thee. Verse seven, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So David, who was really scared, skilled at running from God, you know, the relationship with God goes a lot smoother when we start grasping this. We really can't run from him. Now, it took me a long time to figure that one out. How am I gonna run from a God who knows all and sees all and who's present everywhere? Not gonna work very well. Now, I can rationalize myself. Anybody else done this little game where you kind of rationalize yourself? Say, hey, God, why don't you turn and look the other way because what I'm about to do here, I know you're not pleased with. Anybody ever played that game? Or is that just me? That's David, you know, he, he had some of those moments like, hey, God, look the other way. I'm gonna run and hide from you and indulge the sinful nature over here. And here now he comes to grip with, hey, God, here's what I really need to get a better understanding. God knows me, God sees me, and God is always with me. That might transform maybe how we use our words this week. You notice where David said, hey, before a word is on my mouth, you know it completely. Sometimes I wonder if that's the case. 
like for me anyway, I go, Lord, really, you could have helped that, if you knew those words completely, you could have helped that go a little smoother, because I really wish I wouldn't have said that, at least that way, or done that that way, right? Like, Lord, if you knew that, could you kind of jumped in and took us on a different road there? Anybody else, right? You're just like, you're saying it, and as you're saying it, as the word's coming out, you're wanting to reel them back in, and it's too late. That's David. He's saying, no, God, you know me, you see me, and you're always with me. And this is gonna have some changing of the ways we're relating to each other and how we're, the decisions we make. If we know God is always with us and God sees us and God knows us, this is gonna shape some things. Verse nine, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So David said, I can't go anywhere and escape you. And so here's the kind of the onion of self. We're gonna peel back a couple of layers on this onion of self today. And here's kind of two layers that we have to hold in tension, I think. The first layer we're gonna call the Imago Dei layer. That's Latin for image of God. Here's, the scripture reveals two core layers about self. Healthy self-knowledge starts with Imago Dei. And this is rooted in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God says he created Adam and Eve in his own image. In the image of God, he made them male and female, which by the way, this clarifies value when it comes to gender. Male and female equally created in the image of God. There's the value establishment. No question of equal value between men and women in the kingdom of God. He said, hey, I created them both in my image. And then the role clarification comes later. And we get this all messed up in our culture today. We get role and value all in one discussion. They're two distinct things. Values established with Imago Day, But there's role clarification about how the relationship works between man and woman. That's a whole other discussion for another day. But you follow me? Imago Day stamps the, this is what David's getting at, verse 13 and 14 on the screen. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This is Imago Dei stuff. That's the Latin for image of God. So here's the first layer when it comes to grasping a healthy, what does God see when he sees us? First he sees Imago Dei. You're made in his image. That's significant. To the point where David could say, when God looks at you, there's some things he sees in you that he says, that's fearfully and wonderfully made. There's some things about you that he delights in. He's well pleased with. That's important. And this was part of the dialogue with me. So I was hanging out at the monastery with the 50 nuns and such and all this quiet space. And she's like, hey, I wanna start a dialogue with you, Eric, and I wanna start it right here. Because you know, as a pastor, you go and you pray those scriptures 13 and 14 over all kinds of newborns, and you pray, say, what a fearfully and wonderfully made creature this is. God has brought this life into the world. And the Lord's whispering like, yeah, hey, Eric, how about you? Are you a part of that? So when's the last time we've talked about what is it about Eric Scott Simpson that I look at and I declare is fearfully and wonderfully made and I delight in? I can tell you in 31 years of walking with Jesus, I can't recall an extended conversation with the Lord about that topic. I can't recall one journal entry in my journals about that. Now, that's an indictment on me. I'm not claiming that's not a good thing. But why is that? 
because there's some other things I'll get to in a minute and some of my own fallenness and sin. I drift towards always the things in my life that are, aren't quite squared away and where they need to be. I drift to the end of the psalm. Search me, O oh God, know my heart, test me and know my ways, show me the offensive ways in me. I got dozens of journal entries about that kind of stuff, but I don't have any journal entries about 13 and 14. So I found it interesting that Jesus wanted to start the dialogue there when my tendency is to start the dialogue at the end of the psalm. And he wanted to just spend some time saying, hey, let's step back and look at Eric Scott Simpson, the way I've made you to be and what I rejoice in and delight in. And that was a little uncomfortable because I just kind of had to settle into that. That was leaning into the river of his love. I felt a lot like river man then. I was just flowing in the current there and just going, you know what? I'm not gonna resist this. And one of the first things that surfaced in the midst of that was this affirmation of God delighting in my love for him. Certainly not perfectly, but he delights that I'm the kind of man that genuinely loves him. And he wanted me to know that he knows that. You love me, that's a good thing. I delight in that. That's part of the fearfully and wonderfully made. And he wanted to delight in how I'm attempting to love Kendra and Lily and Kaylin and lead our household. He wanted to delight, wanted me to delight in the husband and father I'm attempting to be. Again, not perfectly, but just saying, hey, Eric, I'm well pleased with this. You're doing a good job as a husband and a father and the priorities you're keeping and the values and you're, you're, you're I'm well, I delight in that. Rest in that. And then there was another segment of the dialogue that got into this, hey, there's a place in your heart that I want to declare is really good. There's a place of goodness inside of Eric Scott Simpson that genuinely wants to help people. That's a good thing. Like you want to help and serve, and that comes from a source of goodness inside of you, and I delight in that. And I want you to delight in that, Eric. And then the last section of it was, hey, Eric, I just want you to relax and lean into something here. Here's who I've made you to be. A teacher, a pastor, an encourager. That's who you are. And I delight in that. And you don't have to work so hard to try to become someone you're not. This is who I've made you to be. And you just be who you are. And the cumulative effect of that segment of the conversation was just kind of internalizing this. So this is what David's getting at when he's saying, God says, fearfully and wonderfully made. This is the Imago Day stuff inside of Simpson. This is the, hey, these are the things that God looks at and he delights in and he rejoices about. He says, hey, those are really good things about you. And Eric, I need you to settle into that and come to grips with that. That's a layer of the onion of self I need to internalize in a deeper way. And I confess to you that I really haven't spent very little of any time on any of those topics with the Lord. And I come back to you seeing that a little more clearly. And you know, from that, the conversation will flow to the other side of it. But, he, but Jesus didn't want me to jump there very quickly. And I spent a good portion of a day just on this section. And I don't know about you, maybe you're a whole lot better at this than I am, probably so. But if you haven't taken some time in your journey with the Lord of simply settling into what is it about you 
that he rejoices and delights and celebrates your Imago Day, I wanna encourage you to do that. What would your journal entry look like? What would your Psalm 139, 13, and 14 outflow look like? And I'm guessing, if you're at all like me, that's gonna take a little time. And that's gonna take a little space and it's gonna take a little quiet. That's not something you do while you're driving 70 on the way to the office in the car. Or 30,000 feet going 700 miles an hour flying to some other part. You know, that's not stillness as I think Jesus was looking for stillness. You following me? I think we're gonna need to carve out some space, we're gonna need some time, that's maybe prayer room type space, and get some space and just settle in and say, Lord, what is it? I'm all go day stuff with me because I think there's some significant implications in our walk and in our relational worlds in light of that. And then David continues, right? The second part of the onion is what I called the sinful nature. So if you got two, two layers of this, if I called it, right, two layers, two things you hold in tension with self, the Bible reveals we're marked with the Imago Dei, image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, and then there's this reality, we're fallen. There's a sinful nature piece, and you gotta hold these in tension. They're two layers of the same onion of self. This is what, the, the Bible speak for sinful nature is lostness, fallenness, old self, old life. There's some phrases, Bible language for sinful nature. This is what Romans 7 says. There's a great line in Romans 7. It says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Anybody felt that? So in your attempt to do good, Eric, and your attempt to do these good things, here's the evil right there with you, Romans 7. That's your sinful nature. Or another way to phrase it, the conversation with the Lord that I was having on this topic was, when my sinful nature wants to rise up and exert itself, what does that look like? And no broad brushing it with generalities, Simpson. Get specific. Name it. There's power in naming things. There's an old proverb that said, I think it was an old Chinese proverb, it says, the beginning of wisdom is to call something by its right name. I think, oh, there's something in that. There's a reason the scriptures list, like in Galatians 5, it doesn't just say, hey, the fruit of the sinful nature is fallenness and then jumps to the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. Do you notice first paragraph 19 to 21 in Galatians 5 says the fruit of the sinful nature and it lists off very specific sins, debauchery and sexual immorality and lying and greed. It lists these things specifically. What is that? I think it's, I think it's this. I think Jesus wants to make sure in all of our lives, we've got an exactness on clarity with our signature sins. That's what I call them. They're my signature sins. We've all got stuff we're working through in life, but I wanna press us to this. Do you have a good handle on your signature sins? That when the sin nature is gonna rise up and exert itself in your life and in your relationships, what is that gonna look like? This is the last part of the psalm. This is the 23 and 24. Here's how David put it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And this is also where David said, Psalm 51.5, this is another David psalm, he says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What's all that getting at? That's getting a sinful nature. 
That means you don't have to learn how to do this. You're just born into this. And if you don't think that there's an, a layer to the onion of self in the category of sinful nature, in evil, in fallenness, in lostness, all you need to do is have kids. Because when you have kids, parents, are you with me? When you have kids, you get a front row seat to our fallenness. You did not have to teach them how to rebel at different points. They just come out of the womb naturally. This is how the shift, our default condition, Imago Day was communion with God, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 forward. So here's your Bible. Here's how much of your Bible has, hey, your default lever was communion with God. Seek God. Pursue him. This is how much of your Bible has that. Here's, the, here's how much of your Bible is uh, your, your default lever shifted to running from God, hiding, rationalizing, fallen, old life, old self. Guess what? Does that tell you how much, where's real life spent here? That's why this Christian life is so difficult. That's why when you unplug from things, have you noticed when you just stop showing up at church and you just stop reading the Bible and you stop listening to things that you know you should be listening to and you just unplug from relationships that you know are encouraging you in your walk? Have you noticed when you just unplug from all of that, you don't drift to a very good place? Have you noticed that? What is that? That's the onion, that's the layer in the onion of self called the sinful nature. And we gotta get a good handle in all of our hearts myself included, on our signature sins, when it wants to exert itself, what does that look like? And for me, there were kind of three main areas here in this one. The first one was a phrase, the Lord's saying, hey, let's put some names to this. Simpson, your sinful nature, here's a, it's gonna rise up and exert itself in a driven workaholic. That ever since I was this high, the positive part of having a good work ethic, the, that's the Imago Dei, like there's some really good things in that you like to work hard. The shadow side of all that, the signature sin manifestation of, you don't know when to stop. When I come up against a barrier, I just work harder and longer. And I'm driven and I'm a workaholic and that's not a healthy thing. That's nothing to celebrate. In a culture that celebrates workaholism, that is nothing to celebrate in the kingdom of Jesus. So I'm confessing it to you that this is one of the areas that I struggle with in the, I call it the unholy trinity of my false self. So like when Eric's exerting sinful nature, not his true authentic self hidden with Christ in God, the opposite of that is driven workaholic. Second is prideful perfectionist. And the third is self-righteous superiority. Boy, aren't you just glad I'm your pastor? That's just really, <laughs> really inspiring, isn't it? It's a hangout with a driven perfectionist, or driven workaholic, a prideful perfectionist, and a self-righteous superiority. And I, I know this also well about my fallenness. I'm really good at self-deception. I don't think I'm alone in that, by the way. I'm pretty good at deceiving myself. So, I didn't just work through all this in a vacuum, when I came back from sabbatical, what I spent the last three weeks doing is submitting it to the spiritual leaders and authority in my life. So the board of elders, I've submitted all of this to them, and I've spent a good portion of my last three weeks in fairly lengthy conversations with many of them on these topics, and simply saying, is this the Eric Simpson that you know? And not just them, some other spiritual mentors in my life, as well as my wife. The first person I sat down with was Kendra. 
Which, by the way, if you struggle with your signature sins, I guarantee one person in your life who knows them well. If you're sitting here going, I don't know what my signature sins are. If you go out on a date and you ask your spouse, what do you think my signature sins are? I guarantee you there will be a response. There will probably be a three-point outline (laughs) with examples. Are you with me? So if you're struggling like I do at times, just not seeing it as clearly as I need to, we need to invite those people in our life who spend the most time with us, who see it, like know us when, you know, things aren't going well, when you've got the stomach flu and they see how you are. When life gets pulled out from under you in a work setting, they see your reaction. When things at home are this, when family dynamics are that, financial pressures are that, they see you in those kinds of settings. You have people in your life who are around you in those settings. And I would encourage you, like I've been attempting to do, I've been trying to go to those people in my life and say, hey, this is what I've discerned with the Lord in this, both the positive, don't just have the negative conversation, I've also, I also submitted the positive side of them all go day. Is this the Eric Simpson you know? Is this who you know me to be? Like when I'm functioning at my best and being led by the Spirit and full of the Spirit, this is who you know me to be. Is that, have I I got clarity on that? And then also, when you see me at my worst, when you know things aren't going well, when the unholy trinity of the false self is acting out, sinful nature is rising up and exerting itself, is this accurate? I think that's important. And to submit those to some people around and let them speak into that. So that's where I'm at in the journey. We're kind of sifting through all that as, as a leadership team and then just sorting out implications for life and work in the church and at home and just just saying, hey, if this is true, then I think the piece of this is, here's kind of one of the big takeaways from this whole journey of self-knowledge. You can't change something you're not aware of. You have to become aware of something in order to begin the process of change. So I think a big part of Psalm 139, and I hope a big part of this morning for all of us, is a takeaway is to say, I need to spend some time with the Lord and say, God, are there some things in my life that I need to begin to see more clearly that you see clearly? That's the prayer of self-examination led by the Spirit. God, I want to see more clearly what you see clearly, because I can't change something I'm not aware of. And there are some pieces, I think, in Malgo Day stuff that he wants to delight in and celebrate and lift up. And then there's some other pieces like, hey, the shadow part is, hey, be careful, cautious, make sure you get some good pieces around you here to prevent this stuff from acting out. Richard Rohr, I put a couple quotes here as we kind of wind things down. Richard Rohr. I read this quote on sabbatical and I busted out laughing, la- loud laughing. In the monastery, I think, is when I read it. Just because you've read a few good books doesn't mean you've surrendered the ego and fallen in love with God. Wow. Let that one settle in. As I'm sitting with my pile of books at a monastery. Hey, Simpson, just because you read through that stack of books doesn't mean you dealt with your ego and you've really fallen in love with God. And then Robert Mulholland says this. You see, there are two fundamental ways of being human in the world. Listen to this now. Trusting in our human resources and abilities, that's option one, or radically trusting in God, there's option two. Unless you are aware of these two selves, these two ways of being in the world, you will have great difficulty allowing God to lead you into a deeper life of wholeness in Christ. 
That, I believe, is the journey of self-knowledge and spiritual formation. And I had an experience that helped ground this as well. You know, David wrote a large number of his psalms in the wilderness and in the deserts of Israel. And on my trip to Israel, I got to spend a lot of time in the desert and in the wilderness. One of the deserts I got to go to was this desert. This is the desert of En Gedi. The desert of En Gedi, you can look it up later, 1 Samuel 23 and 24, is where David ran when Saul, the first king of Israel, was chasing David, the second king of Israel. Because when the second king is anointed king, while the first king is in office, do you think there'd be a little tension? Might be. There was. Saul, first king of Israel, did a bunch of stuff that God says, I gotta move on from you. I picked David to be the second king. And so then Saul says, well, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna find David and kill him. So David runs off. David runs off to the wilderness, which is where you'd go. Like, Saul has the entire army at his disposal, and he wants to kill you because you're king number two, and he's king number one, and he's not interested in relinquishing the throne. So David goes to the desert of En Gedi. We got to go to the desert of En Gedi. We spent a whole morning in En Gedi. Psalm 57 was probably written in the desert of En Gedi. We hiked up there and it was hot, it was 95 plus degrees and we went an hour and a half or so up the hillside, sweating, trying to take pictures of just that. That's the desert of En Gedi right there. And the horizon, I know you can't see it in the picture, but as the desert of En Gedi, as you come out of it, you go down to the Dead Sea. So you go from an elevation of like 2,500 to 3,000 feet down to the lowest spot on the planet. Did you know the Dead Sea is the lowest place on planet Earth? It's the lowest place on the Earth. And so that's the place where and Getty kind of empties into. Well, we were hiking up here, and about an hour and a half or so in, I started to hear some sounds. I started to hear like some rushing water. Next slide, Ted. I started to hear like, and I looked up, and there were those, back one more, Ted, the the cave section, so the desert of En Gedi, as you're hiking along, you start hearing some rushing water and then you look up to your right and you see that. So in 1 Samuel 23 and 24, David runs and he's hiding out and he figures out Saul is in the cave. And this is the story where Saul is, the scripture says Saul's relieving himself. Don't you love the Bible stories? That's amazing, why would God tell, why would we need that detail? I love God's sense of humor in that. Saul's doing number two in the cave. Like, and it's in the Bible. You wanna get your kids to read the Bible? Read them that story. They'll be like, wow, especially middle school boys, they'll be all over that one. And David, because Saul's relieving himself in such a way that he goes in there and Saul had taken off his robe and placed it somewhere evidently near the front of the cave and David sneaks in there and he, and he clips off a piece of Saul's robe in the cave. This is all in 1 Samuel 23 and 24. I'm standing in the desert of En Gedi. I'm reading this story, and I look up to my right, and look what I see. Some cave openings. Now, the archaeologists aren't 100% that those were the caves, but you sure look at the Bible, and you read the story, and you go, makes sense to me. Desert of En Gedi, Saul, caves. I mean, you know your faith is real, Gang, we know these stories in here are real. Or if not, I'm letting you, these stories in here are real. 
And when you go to those places and you put your feet where David put his feet or where Jesus put his feet, I come back to report to you, these are real. Your faith is real. Like there's a real desert of En There's a real cave where Saul really did relieve himself, where David really did clip off a piece of his robe. And while I'm just basking all that, I keep hearing this water flowing. An hour and a half in at 95 degrees, that sounded really good. And that's when we landed on this. Next slide, Ted. Right in the middle of the hottest sand and the kind of barrenness of that valley, there's this fresh water spring, the spring of En flowing over a waterfall. I stood there and I thought, David knew this. What do you think David's going the desert of En for? Huh? He knew the caves were there so he could get some relief that way, and he knew he had a water source, which when you're in the desert, you're gonna survive by water. I stood there and thought, it's amazing. And we just refreshed ourselves. We, we sang some worship songs there. We snapped some pictures. And if you wanna know how I've come back from sabbatical, that's the best image I can give you. My re-entry kind of internal world, that's it. In the midst of all of our personal En because we've got plenty of En journeys going on in the body here, right? Some of you are in the middle of a multi-week, multi-month, multi-year desert hike, and you are longing to come upon the spring of En and stand under that kind of a waterfall. And others of you, maybe have recently found it and begun to drink deeply of it. And because you've given me the gift of these four months, I come back grateful to drink deeply of that stream and to report back to you, I'm seeing things a little more clearly, gang. I'm seeing God's love a little more clearly. I'm seeing God's gifts a little more clearly. And by his grace, I'm seeing me a little more clearly. So thank you. Let's pray. Jesus, so many moments here, so many stories, uh, so many personal and Gettys. Oh, I just pray for those who come in longing to find that water source. May this be a week. May this be a day. May this be a moment right here where they join David right there and just drink deeply. And Lord, thank you for all the gracious ways, when you, the ways you've led us and guided us, and thank you for the personal ways. You're such a personal God. You know right where we are and right what we need, and I pray this journey we're all gonna go, I, I pray that there would be some healthy self-reflection, spirit-led self-examination. I pray we'd have some clarity about who we are, who you've made us to be, where our shadow side rises up, Pray there'd be some good personal kind of journal entries that flow out of this that manifest itself in fruitfulness like Psalm 139 type stuff. So we trust you for it. Thank you for the gift that these months have been. Thank you for the gift of clarity when the sediment settles. In Jesus' name.